0: So. Welcome to the Speak Up Talk Radio Network, the Authors on Fire podcast. I am Pat Rulo with a Firebird Book Award-winning author, Amanda Cetus, and the winning book is titled Thrown to the Wind amanda is the author of the historical adventure series a country for castoffs the stories are taken from her family history which she has spent over two decades researching a home in the wilderness recently released is the second book in the series which began in thrown to the wind she taught diverse grade level and advanced placement courses in american european and world history to high school and middle school students for 14 years She lives in Tucson, Arizona for most of the year with her husband and two little Yorkie mixes. And she escapes when she can to the beach at Rocky Point, Mexico, to the Willamette River in Portland, Oregon, and anywhere her SUV and travel trailer can take her. She has three grown children and three beautiful grandchildren and another on the way. And I am so happy to have this opportunity to find out more. So welcome, Amanda. Thank you. And I'm so honored
1: to be here with you and so amazing to get the award.
0: <laughs> kind of a surprise. I don't know. <laughs> you're welcome. You're welcome. I get that. You know, you put your work into something you have no idea if, if you're the only one that loves it or if other, exactly. folks, you know, other folks are going to appreciate it. And you know what it does, it really gives that big boost of confidence so that anything else that's coming along in your future as far as, as writing goes, I think you'll just approach it with a different approach of confidence
1: right, right,
0: well, we kind of um uh, bonded a little over in an email over the fact that you're in Arizona and I used to live out there for ten years and I remember everybody used to always go to Rocky Point it's just such a lovely lovely place, isn't it
1: it oh it is and we finally got some rain this week, so uh it's been pretty dry here so and in the hot too for October it's um but it's finally starting to cool down so that's that's nice. maybe we're going to see some fall
0: here soon. <laughs> <laughs> I love <laughs> fall in Arizona. I I lived right at the base of the Superstition Mountain, so right you know right in the Sonoran Desert, and it oh, uh, yeah yeah so lovely. And occasionally we would get some snow on the mountain, and that was a real treat.
1: Well, you know, one year in eighty one, I think it was nineteen eighty one, we actually got snow on Christmas in Tucson. Oh, we had what all of two or three inches on all the cactus. It was kind of. Amazing,
0: <laughs> especially on Christmas. That's just so wow. That's that's so perfect. Christmas in Arizona. I loved it. I one year I even had my husband decorate a saguaro with uh, lights, which was quite dangerous. Oh <laughs> yes, I bet that was. <laughs> All right. Enough of Arizona. So it sounds like your books sprang from research into your family. Maybe just give us a little background as far as all the research.
1: okay, so I've been researching my family history
0: genealogy for over
1: thirty years now, and as i and of course, being a history teacher too, it was fun to see the connections between the family stories and the the major events. In history. And as I started, it it took me five years to research, thrown to the wind. And as I started getting beyond the, the, I don't know, maybe boring, vital records, um, into uh, uncovering some of the stories, I started to see connections. And I stumbled on a couple of really fun stories that really started to get me thinking about what it would have been like for this little boy, Etienne, who um, one of the the first um, little note that I had stumbled across was that his family had fled from La Rochelle in the middle of the night, so that his dad wouldn't get uh, so arrest, arrested. And so I thought that's interesting, because that's weird. And I didn't even know at the time that we had any French ancestors until I you know had traced it back that far. So that was interesting too. And I was like, well, why were they fleeing in the middle of the night? Well, it's in it was in 1660. And I, I did find records that there were 600 Huguenot families who had to flee because this is at the right at the beginning of King Louis XIV, where he he'd been king for a while, but he's now starting to assume power for himself. Uh, he's now matured to the to the age that he can do that. He had just married uh, Marie Maria Teresa. And she was a staunch Catholic, and so starting to crack down on what he deemed the, the Huguenot heresy or the Protestant heresy in France was a way for him to start to get control of the country and solidify his power. And so this is it's really kind of towards the end of the religious wars. Because they'd had the siege of La Rochelle back in the 1500s and, but, so that was an interesting thing and I, I started, it was, it was amazing what, what I was able to find. I even discovered that he lived in a rented house that had blue and white tiles and, which, you know, is going way beyond what you can oftentimes see in, uh, and these kinds of research. And then, as I was looking at his journey, and I found the ship log uh, on the ships that they took on their journeys, and I stumbled across a little bit of information in an old book on the history of New Harlem, and they had this really fascinating story documented about how he had worked for uh, Captain Carteret, and was went to pick cherries and the renter in this uh of this house where he was picking cherries, Mr. Palmer was a carpenter, a ship's carpenter, and he came out and he starts yelling at them and starts beating him and chasing him through the streets and there's even a court case documented on this whole on this whole event. And and <laughs> and so that's really started kind of the beginnings of this story and So I use kind of a long-winded explanation, but I I, I try to use a lot of primary sources, and really the primary sources are where my research begins, and it's those stories that spark the excitement and the sort of puts the stories together, and and then I can set it into the time and look at, you know, how do these big events impact ordinary people? And I guess that's what I enjoy it most
0: about it. You found some quite some detailed information, which is just stunning to go way that far back to find the things that you found. No wonder it took two decades. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's been a lot of research over the years, but you know. <laughs> oh, my, but, but and, and none of your family members knew any of this. You were kind of unveiling um, it, right?
1: My mother, this is on my mother's side, this story. And they didn't realize that there was French in their lineage either until I, you know, uncovered the, the genealogy. They thought they were German and Irish and English, and that was it. And, and a little Native American, but yeah. <laughs> um, but it's been fun, I yeah. guess, to share the stories.
0: How did this research and the writing of your books change or affect you? I mean, I would imagine... It- Maybe change you and your family just a little bit, the, just the dynamic to know what the past was truly about.
1: A lot of times you think, oh, my life is boring, I don't have much going on. But when you really start looking at these events and the things that these people lived through and the journeys, I mean, just traveling across the Atlantic Ocean is was a harrowing journey. You know, it took six weeks, sometimes eight weeks, depending, and just so much could happen in the way and and uh, I talk about some a scurvy you know a lot of people did get scurvy at that time cuz lack of vitamin C and so i even i had to go so i guess it's impacted me in thinking about my own life you know i don't have it so bad really i mean what am i whining about <laughs> you know, when yeah. uh, when you see what these other people have survived and what they've had to overcome. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Like we said, it took two decades to uncover all of this information. At what point in time did you think to put this in a fictionalized version and create these stories? I
1: really started writing while I was teaching and it took,
0: well, let's see, I published that one in 19
1: or uh, 2019 and that took me five years to actually write the book. Um, and I it was, it was while I was teaching, because I would talk to my students, and, you know, a lot of students think that history is boring. I think history is exciting, and, you know, sometimes you can uncover things that are more fascinating or unbelievable than real life um, in history, and so I would start sharing some of the little tidbits that I had discovered in my research, my personal research, with my students, and all of a sudden, they would perk up, and they'd get excited, and, they would start to identify more with the, the bigger events because they could identify with the, the real people. Mm-hmm. And so I read this book too by, um, what's her name, Elise Kahn, Uh and she talks about how uh we learn best through story. And, you know, my mother was a storyteller as well. She was an oral storyteller, and she would teach us a lot of things through story and as a history teacher discovering that kids also if you can tell them a, tell it to them as a story they get much more excited much more engaged mm-hmm. and they learn stuff and so that's when i started that was kind of the impetus i had written some other things and they were all terrible and <laughs> <laughs> it was kind of the combination of teaching and sure. the culmination of all this stuff i'd learned that i finally started writing it down.
0: And because you taught high school and middle school, it seemed probably an easy transition for you to write for a young adult audience.
1: Yes. And I really started with, Etienne was a young boy, and that's why, you know, so it seemed to be better to kind of aim that more at at his age group, which is more of a middle grade audience. But, But honestly, I've had tons of adults that have read it and loved it and also. So, you know, I guess a a good story can be timeless and and cross generations.
0: You know, as I got older, I wished that I had paid attention in history class, but then I guess there was really nothing to pay attention to because it was just so dry and rote and you have to memorize dates. It's like, who cares? I wish I would have had a teacher like you that could have added some reality to it or a reason to dig and try to um, find out what happened and how it might apply to the present and the future. So hats off to you for inspiring your students. You probably have no idea How many of them might go on to research their own family history and maybe even write books of their own? Right. Yeah. No, I, I've kept in touch with some of my students and we'll see. So, you know. Yep. yep. Hallmark of a good, good teacher. No,
1: history is so much more than just names and dates. You know, history is, is, it's a journey. It's, you learn about yourself, your country, your world that we live in and, and I was always really big on teaching different perspectives or points of view. Mm-hmm. So even in this book, it's written from the point of view of a Protestant boy, and yet his cousin was Catholic. And so we get the Catholic perspective also mm-hmm. in the point of view of his, his cousin, uh, this musketeer that he runs into. And so I try to be as balanced as I can. And in the second book, um, when he takes place now when he's... So the second book is Home in the Wilderness. And that then picks up the story once he's in they're settled in the New World, which is was then the wilderness of Manhattan um, <laughs> before it became a huge city. And um his friend, one of his friends is Lenape. So then I try to give to really understand history, you have to understand the different groups of people and how they interacted from their own perspectives. So I really, when I taught and when I write, I really try to give multiple perspectives on the events that are happening Mm -hmm. to to make it as balanced as possible. Are you still teaching, Amanda? I am not. Mm -hmm. I stopped teaching a couple of
0: years ago to write full time. Well, you're still teaching, but just not in a classroom. It's in a
1: different way. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. and I I have done a, I did write a, I co-authored a teacher resource that goes along with My first book in the hopes that teachers, homeschool parents might want to use it to help their kids really learn the history of this period. And Mm -hmm. I have some great discussion questions in there and um, activities and various things. So I can't stop being a teacher, I guess is really what (laughs) that amounts
0: to. So you gave us a little bits and pieces of the of the story. Do you want to go into any more detail about what our readers might expect just storyline-wise with the book, or shall we let them pick up the book and find it? It's up to you.
1: I can give you a little bit of background okay. on it. Okay. Sure, I don't want to give away the whole plot, no, no. but it is an immigrant story, and it takes place it's in October. It starts in October of 1660. And it follows Etienne and his family over a year. Um, so they first, they have to flee. And when I, I, so the beginning, the first part of the book, it shows his life in show and what the Protestant school was like. And, um, he had, was kind of an insecure little boy, was teased. Um, his dad was a manual. Um, a lot of the, the Huguenots were the merchant class. The skilled class, you know, craftsmen and, and all of that. His dad was a stove maker merchant, so he would build these stone, they're not really fireplaces, they're like a cooking surface. It's kind of like the precursor to a stove, um, but they had a hole in it. You put a fire underneath it and you'd cook your food on top of it. You know, the French and their gourmet cooking and all of that. So, but because his dad was a manual laborer, he was, they were called prolet, like proletariat, right? So prolet was kind of a derogatory term because they weren't really in the bourgeoisie. They were, you know, um, so he was teased, um, because he was from a poorer family. Um, but so the, the journey then they, they flee La Rochelle. They first go to New Amsterdam. They get into some trouble there, um, that he has to then step up and he grows a lot then through this story kind of a, it's a bit of a coming-of-age story as well. Uh, Eventually, as uh, some of your audience may know, um, the Protestants ended up wanting to leave New Amsterdam, too, because they went from being persecuted to now there's so much freedom, we're afraid that what's going to happen to our children, they're going to, you know, go wild. (laughs) And so they ended up leaving there and Come to the new world. So you see the two voyages: the first voyage to Amsterdam, and then kind of a comparison. What was Amsterdam like compared to La Rochelle, and the problems? There was he run. They run into several issues there that he they have to get themselves out of. So it's an adventure story as well. And then the voyage and the troubles at sea, and it kind of ends, a landing in the new world. So um, I don't want to spoil too much. but
0: All right. And that's the book titled Throne to the Wind, and now you have a new release, A Home in the Wilderness, which follows up on that. Yes. yes. I'm
1: working on the third one, mm-hmm. which is At the Mercy of the Sea, and that should be coming out, I think it's supposed to come out in April or May, uh, this next year. So
0: Here we go. Is that the third and final, or will there be more? It's
1: that one's kind of the climax. It's actually a five book series. Uh-huh. So that's gonna be kind of the climax. Yes, yeah, so that'll be the third in a five book series.
0: Oh my. Um, now you worked with a small publishing company, right? Yes. Yes. Wendy C publishing. How was the process for you? Um, it's gone really well.
1: It's a it is a new imprint, fairly young imprint, so um we're kind of getting it started and building it together and um We've got a few authors that uh, have been published through it, and starting to, to get some movement as far as visibility. I guess that's where we're we're trying to get the visibility now with um, the different markets, children's markets, and um, those kinds of things. Yeah. But but the quality of book, I think, is is good. It's up to industry standards. The support is is you know I have a lot of control in that, and,
0: which is nice. Well, there's something to be said t- to work with a smaller press, um, especially one that's just getting started. You probably have a lot more feedback that you can offer and kind of more of a two-way conversation. I think there might be some advantages to that. Yes, mm-hmm. I think so. Mm-hmm. And um, The cover, we have to talk about that. I love the cover. How did that come about? So we found an illustrator.
1: We actually had a, a original all right, true confessions. I designed the very first cover, which I think was okay, but it wasn't selling well and so um the publishing house said, Let's let's so that was involved with let's just redesign the cover. Let's make it more kid appealing. So um they found the illustrator for me and um, so we went through that process, and and of course they're right. The <laughs> the new cover is way better.
0: <laughs> cover artwork is just so tricky. It's so easy to fall in love with the first thing, and especially if you created it, it's easy to say no. This is the cover, but so important right. to get feedback from others. To
1: well, and you know, as an indie author, when you're trying to get started, you're trying to keep costs down, and all of that. Mm-hmm. Mistakes, you know, learned. <laughs> you make mistakes if you learn from it, and yeah, I'm I'm very happy with the cover.
0: So, what's the feedback? What have you been uh, hearing from readers?
1: I've had a lot of readers tell me that well, they do like the cover. We were talking about that, but I've also had a lot of feedback. I we just released the um, the audio book this fall, and I've had a lot of reviews. One of them in my head where he says he listened to it they listened to a couple of chapters of that every night with his nine and 11 year old daughters and he said there were so many nights when they would they would you know they the story, the chapter ends on a little bit of a cliffhanger and so they were begging to listen to one more story and he's like no no <laughs> you know so um i've had a lot of good feedback and of course the Voice actor, uh, Daniel Kay, who, who, uh, read that story, did a fantastic job. I mean, it, it made me, you know, of course I'm familiar with the story, but hearing somebody else act it out, Mm -hmm. it was like, really? Did I write, you know, Mm -hmm. I gave it such a different feel, you know, than what even I had, um, could imagine. And he was, he's a actor, voice actor from Montreal, so he speaks French fluently. Oh. and English, and he was able to, to get the right balance in there. Mm-hmm. So you, um, I don't know. He just did a fantastic job.
0: What a um, compliment for a parent to say that we sat quietly and listened to the <laughs> audiobook and that my children didn't want to go to sleep. They wanted to hear more. I can't imagine a better compliment than yeah. that. I, I, yeah, I, I it, really it, it was a great review. Yes, yes. <laughs> and to have an audiobook narrator bring it to life it's not just yeah. a reading of the words to have somebody as you say bring life to it that even even you didn't expect
1: right well you know it even gave me a different perspective on the on the on the book i mean it was it was amazing it's like wow i didn't realize <laughs> <laughs> hey this is good
0: <laughs> well you know yeah I, I, you see different things when you're so close to it yes and, Absolutely isn't that the truth that is for sure all right so we know what's next you're working on three out of five any other ideas tickling your brain outside of this series
1: I do have a couple of other projects I'm working on
0: uh, in between
1: things uh, one of them is is also based on a genealogy from my dad's line and that one is uh, it's kind of a love story actually this this couple my Great, great, great grandparents. I think it's two or three. I don't know. It's before the civil Civil War, yeah, or right around the Civil War, 1800s, and they met in this little town, and it's kind of in, I guess it's in Poland right now, but it's kind of on that borderline between Poland and Germany, and so they met there, and he was a milk deliverer, milkman. He would deliver the milk every morning, and he met this girl, and he just thought she was the most beautiful thing in the world, and he went back and told all of his friends, I'm going to marry this girl. He goes back the next day, and she's gone. And he doesn't run into her again until a couple of years later, when this is during Otto von Bismarck's rise to power, and they were um, the germification of that whole region and made Polish language illegal and all of this stuff. And so he had a lot of immigrants fleeing from that region and immigrating to the United States. And so he settled in Michigan, went to this little dance that was, you know, supposed to, the German community there wanted um to, their girls to marry good German men. So they would put this dance together and he happens upon this girl that he had seen when he was delivering milk way back when. And of course the the story is that they did fall in love, and they ended up getting married, and so it's this love story <laughs> you know, <laughs> which happens to be a true story, so oh. again, the, you know truth being stranger than fiction sometimes <laughs> so um yeah, so I'm working on that, and there's another story I'm working on that's russian i I've always loved Russian history, so that's kind of a Russian flair during the. Russian Revolution so I don't know I'm running out of time
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> but yeah so um, there's there's other stories too that are not related to the series
0: I love that I saw that on your um website the milkman and the I don't remember what the washerwoman the washerwoman yeah, the- <laughs> just the title of that in that picture was oh my gosh the milkman and the washerwoman I love that it sounds like an old fable or something you know <laughs> So,
1: yeah. I can't, Working title. I don't know if it'll stay that way, but we'll see.
0: I kind of like it. It s- says what it is, you know. Yeah, right. Oh, my gosh. That's wonderful. Keep me posted on that. All righty. How is this? Anything we missed as we were chatting today? I want to make sure we're not missing anything you wanted to bring up.
1: I guess I just I would just say that the, the audio book for A Home in the Wilderness, my second
0: book, is in the works mm-hmm. right
1: now. So that should be coming out, Good. I think, in January. She said. So, I don't know, lots of things.
0: Got lots of good things going. Well, Amanda, would you then share all of your contact information where folks can find out more about you and get copies of your books? Yeah. So, my books are available on Amazon. They're also available at at bookstores
1: like Barnes & Noble and other bookstores. You can also go to my website is com. My publisher's website is Um and there are ways you can contact me from either one of those sites.
0: All righty. So we're speaking with Amanda Cetus, and the book that won the Firebird Book Award is Thrown to the Wind. We also have A Home in the Wilderness. The audiobooks sound awesome. Third book coming along, the milkman and the washerwoman. Can't wait for that. Thank you so much, Amanda, for sharing you and your family history and your writing process with us today. And I'm looking forward to doing many more of these conversations with you. So thank you for today.
1: Thank you so much for for chatting with me.